welcome to creating wealth through passive apartment investing podcast in this show we will discuss about best and worst experiences about passive and active apartment investing and i am your host ramakrishna let's begin the show today's our guest is omar khan from broadwalk wealth group welcome omar hey thank you rama thanks for being on the show no worries a little bit about omar Omar syndicated large multifamily dollar deals across the US he is responsible for capital raising strategic planning and investor relations he has over 10 years of global investment experience he was working for a large company helping raise 3.7 billion as an analyst during his time there with that omar would you like to add anything to your background no nothing in particular you know my background is very similar to a lot of guys who worked in institutional finance you kind of do your little whatever a couple of years of tour of duty and then if you're entrepreneurial you just head out and start doing your own thing and you know and you learn along the way and uh, some experiences are good and some experiences are bad and that's just the way it is right so how did you get started into real estate and multifamily Oh my family owns a lot of real estate commercial real estate not residential which I later found out was weird a lot of people start residential so that was one thing the other thing was when I moved from Canada a few years ago between my wife and I we were comfortably going to pay in the six figures in taxes and while that's a nice problem to have I'm not pretending it's not a nice thing to have it was still a problem because we were what 31 and we're thinking okay this is uh it's a lot of money you're paying in taxes so what do I do luckily for me I kind of knew about tax some level of tax structuring and all based on my personal and professional experiences so I basically you know went into multifamily again the deal there was because I had a lot of background in structuring deals raising money so it was an easier segue than for instance if I was just doing a complete career transition right if I was I don't know if I was say an engineer or a social worker or physician and then moving here that would have been a lot more tough but this was tough but not as tough as so any challenges you faced during early stages of multifamily journey and how did you overcome them well look the challenges everybody faces are different my challenges were in technical my challenges were more along the lines of learning marketing developing a brand all of that sort of stuff and again a lot of those things are things you just do and some may work and some might not work but you just have to kind of figure out what your personality is and what works best for you and the same thing could be a great system say for you rama but if i do it because it's not congruent with my personality it might not work out right right so it was that sort of thing learning that and it's still a learning process but just going through that requires time and effort and a lot of frustration so that was more understanding my personality and then understanding around the marketing aspects what things are congruent for that right so what are your focus markets omar and what is the reason So my focus markets are Texas, Florida and Georgia. Uh, I mean they're very self-explanatory, you know, they're landlord friendly states, high growth states, no income, no personal income tax. That's specifically why I'm there. Okay. And what type of properties and what size of properties? Oh, we only do class B, B plus value at 150 plus units. Okay. So and what are all the factors and variables you would consider for selecting a sub market in that markets? So typically what we're looking for is basically demographic or rather I'm looking for. So on again this is not a line and stand but typically the median incomes are 50,000 plus in the zip code or census tract that the property is located. They've got to be in a good school district. There's got to be some level of supply and demand imbalance and there has to be some sort of you know a typical value add play but also an operational play where we can come in and right size the expenses. while focusing on the revenue aspect of things but again boils down to income school districts demand supply imbalances and then a construction plus a management play great so how do you get those variables data omar 
how do I get the variables data? Well, the median income and all of those are demographic data is pretty simple. You can either subscribe to services. You can either even go to free places like city data and niche.com and just get, literally by zip code, you can get all of this stuff. In fact, I'm, I'm sure you can get it everywhere. I just would just get it from the US census because that's the source. School district, that's pretty easy. You can go look up schools and see how highly is the school district rated. A couple of schools that are the nearest schools around this property and in the wider catchment area. Well, what's their rating out of 10? You know, because uh, again, I think a good free resource, we use a couple of industry uh, paid sources, but a good free resource is great schools. Uh, they actually rank the schools that are in the zip code. So that helps. That's that. What was the third point? So demographics data, which includes median income, then basically school districts, and then, you know, demand supply imbalance, you can really find out, uh, say from paid industry sources, as an example, CoStar, Yardi. It's the other one. I'm forgetting the other one I have. It's a Reese, basically, which tells you how much construction has happened in the past, say, 10 years, how much construction at that moment is expected to happen based on the permits that are pulled and everything. And then what was the absorption rate in the market? And again, I'm trying to really simplify it. There's a lot more things that go into this, right? So that kind of tells you, okay, how much construction has happened? What was the absorption? What is future construction happening? So is there a demand supply imbalance, right? And then in the end, when you look at the individual property, you can figure out, okay, and you have to do tours and all of that sort of stuff, right? And again, I'm simplifying this, right? Once you do that, you realize, okay, are the expenses too high? If they're not high, what's the play here? Is it all a revenue play? Is it some revenue plus expenses? Uh, what's going on, right? So that's very property specific. Great. So how do you raise capital per reward deals, Omar? Well, I just have a good investor network that I've nurtured over like the past decade or so. And, you know, we have a good track record. We've got a good relationship. People trust me and they know me. So that's how I raise my money. It's all my own money, basically, or it's through me. Okay. So why foreign investors invest in US multifamily? What is the reason? Well, I'm sure there's multiple reasons. I just, because, look, I'm from Pakistan, but I went to school in Canada. I've got lots of friends in the UAE, South Korea, Hong Kong. So a lot of folks, times there, people are, most of these people are really rich. So, you know, when you're rich people, you want to diversify your holdings, right? Number one. So that's a big play for a lot of my investors. I don't know what all foreign investors are doing. The other thing straight up is because I have a good relationship with a lot of these investors that are my investors. So they, it's less the deal and more me that they're investing in, which I think is very similar to a lot of sponsors that people have to trust the sponsor first, right? So in my particular case, people trust me. They've known me professionally and personally for a long period of time. They've seen my track record. So the trust is very important. And then, I mean, they're rich enough people to know that, hey, if I throw you a couple of hundred thousand and I have some interest in some properties in Texas, that's okay. I mean, people, like a lot of these are investment professionals. So they're not, you don't have to explain these things to them, right? Whereas versus if somebody was not an investment professional, then it might be a very different ball game to explain to somebody, say from Hong Kong or India or Russia, hey, why should you go invest in the US? Yeah, so right. So and what is the process for them to invest in US money? family. Oh, it's not that hard. I mean, look, you, you got to have a U.S. domicile bank account. You can have a foreign domicile bank account, but I don't deal with that because I don't want to pay withholding taxes and all. I don't want to be bothered with that. So they can just get a U.S. domicile bank account. They have to have the right cross-border CPA. So somebody who's well-versed in the tax tree between their country and the U.S. And, and it's pretty simple. You wire money into that account, that your which is their own account, U.S. domicile. That money wires money into our uh, our deal. And, you know, obviously we, we know our client and we, you know, we, we've done all the due diligence on them as they have done on us. And then they're investors basically in our deal. It's very simple. Right. So and what kind of due diligence they need to perform before investing in anything in US? 
Well, look, like I was saying, they first of all have to do a due diligence on the sponsor, number one, right? So whatever it is, qualitative, quantitative, track record, does the sponsor have a criminal record? Are they competent? Does this match their professional background? Then on the D level, they just have to be comfortable realizing that what are they investing in? Is it a good match for what they want to do? So as an example, somebody only wants to invest in class A++ luxury properties in Miami or San Francisco, and I'm doing garden properties in Atlanta, well, that might might not be a good fit for us, right? Yeah. So they kind of have to know what they're looking for. Again, luckily in my particular case, because I my background is in investment management. So a lot of people in my social network, my investors, they happen to be financially sophisticated. So a lot of these things that people typically do, they've already done because that's just natural for them, right? So I don't necessarily have to explain. I can if somebody asks me, but typically my investors are sophisticated enough that I don't have to necessarily explain the basics to them. Right. And what kind of steps they need to take to avoid any kind of tax legal issues? Well, they have to pay taxes. There's just no other way around it. Eventually you have to pay taxes. Every All these real estate guys who tell you you never have to pay taxes, that's just a complete myth. Right. You might defer taxes, but you have to pay taxes eventually. Okay. So this is like I said earlier, they need to have a good cross-border CPA, which basically means that let's assume some, uh, some investors coming from India. That person, whoever CPA they hire, that CPA has to know the tax treaty between India and the US. So then they know, okay, which law applies to Indians, which American laws applies to Indians, what do Indians have to do as an example to make sure that they're not in contravention of either Indian law or American law. But I'll be very honest with you, most big countries, because they have a tax treaty, things have been made very simple if you just plainly want to move money back and forth, unless you know, you're trying to do something shady. So it's not that hard. It just sounds really hard. All you have to do is find the right CPA, cross-border CPA, and then go from there. Right. So and can you tell me about your best apartment investment? experience so far? Every apartment experience is best because I learned something new from it. You know, some deals uh, require more work, but they're best in the sense that you learn a lot of things. You know, you learn new things that you should be looking at or new things to add to your toolkit. And to be honest with you, so far, I haven't done any deal where I didn't learn anything. So I would say they're all best uh, for the time being. But if you're talking purely in terms of numbers, right, and not me, because I I literally think of this as a learning process. A good example is the deal we're doing in Atlanta right now. We closed in December about a $25 million deal, give or take. And honestly, that thing is literally, it's weird. Like even during the pandemic, we've been able to get 150, 200, even $300 rent premium. But again, the deal there was, it's located in a sub-market where the schools are like, nine or 10 out of 10, there's a complete demand supply imbalance because they don't even, that township doesn't even want any apartment buildings being built. And on top of that, the median income in that zip code and census tract is something like 60 or $80,000. So you have high, relatively high income people in a great school district where they don't have a lot of options. So when you have that sort of deal, people are going to pay you money if you give them the right product. So even during pandemic, we didn't stop our renovations. We didn't do anything. We just kept doing the renovations, kept getting the rent premiums, kept chugging along. And any challenges during COVID period? Well, luckily for us so far, touch wood, I don't want to curse myself so far. Look, no, we haven't had any challenges so far. And I believe a lot of folks who are in the larger 150, 250 sort of class B, B plus value add, high, you know, upper middle class income zip codes, all the sponsors I know, they too have also not had a lot of significant challenges so far. So thank God for that. I know it's been a very trying time for a lot of people. But again, this kind of proves that thesis, right? That if you buy quality, you might pay a little bit more 
money for it compared to not buying quality. But look, you can pay now or you can pay later, right? So you have to pay for quality because quality is basically how real money is made. So if you buy quality, you don't have to go through a lot of these challenges that other people who are buying C's and D's and all of these types of properties are going through. Yes. So right. Yeah. And any worst experience? So far, none. But it seems like, you know, every 2020 seems like every week brings a new challenge. So right. Yeah. I don't want to say anything right now and curse myself because what is it? It's the 5th of, is it? No, it's the 9th of August today. So we've still got what, three and a half months left in the year. And I don't want to say something and curse myself because every week it seems like 2020 brings something so left field that you're like, dude, like how did this even happen? So Rama, I'm just really crossing my fingers now that you've asked me this question. I don't want to say anything because I don't want to curse myself. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so far. But if you ask me maybe at the end of the year, I might have more stories. Okay. That's fine. So what is your current focus and share something you're excited about now, Omar. Look, the current focus is always, it's the same focus that was there last year, same focus as the year before that. I put my own money into all my deals, right? So my money goes in first and leaves in the end. So because I'm putting my own money into deals, I it's the, the game plan has always been the same. You go in conservative, you have enough operating reserves built in, you always have a margin of safety, you always under promise and over deliver. And to be honest with you, none of that has changed. And I find it so funny when sponsors post on social media or they'll go on interviews and say, well, we're playing defensive now. And you're like, that's really stupid because when should you not be playing defensive? You should always be playing defense, right? But it's really funny when people say, oh, we're playing defensive now. And I was like, okay, that sounds really dumb. You should have been playing defensive to begin with, right? So no, nothing's changed. It's business as usual because we're always conservative. It's always steady eddy sort of thing. We're not trying to aim for the moon. We're just trying to get consistent, solid, sustainable returns. Okay, awesome. Yeah. So what is one advice that you impacted your life? Oh man, there's lots of advices, man. I am the poster child for second chances and good advice from other people. Lots of advices are, you know, eventually you have to take a risk and a chance. There'll never be a perfect time to do something, right? And you can either sit on the sidelines or complain, or you can get into the game and figure things out as you go along. Right. So any one personal habit that contributes to your success? Oh, reading, I guess. I don't know if that's a habit or more of an interest. I love reading and not real estate. I just generally love reading and getting to, I'm curious about different things, different people. And I think what reading, if you're a lifelong learner, a lifelong reader, what uh, reading does to you is that it helps you uh, develop mental models that help you then, you can take a mental model, say from one area of life, apply it somewhere else. And it helps you provide perspective on things. You're able to see things from multiple perspectives to hopefully take a better decision. Right. So any one book that impacted your life and what way? Oh, there's lots of books. I read them all the time and I give them away. So right now, Oh yeah, there's one book. There's a series of books, but the seminal book in that is Black Swan. It's a, it's a book on basically risk management of sorts, but basically how to, you know how a lot of times we say, oh, it's a once in a thousand year thing, but that happens every seven years, right? So it's basically a book on that and trying to understand how to manage risk or how to view things. A couple of books on behavioral economics, thinking fast and slow, you know, different books contribute different things. Right. So on what way you're giving back to community? Well, number one is that I'm making a lot of money for my investors which is my way of giving back to the community. Plus, you know, my wife as a physician, you know, we uh, volunteer and do a lot of stuff in our local community just to help out that thing. But what I feel is a lot of times I'm, I have to do my job and I have to do the best possible job to make sure that all the people who've entrusted me with their money, they come out happy on the other side of this thing. Right. So how can listeners can connect with you, Omar? Oh yeah, you can email me at omar, O-M-A-R at boardwalkwealth.com. You can also go to our website, boardwalkwealth.com. That's one word, B-O 
joerdwalkwealth.com. Right on the front page, you'll see the name, email, and how you find out about us. So hopefully you know your name. Hopefully you know your email. And how you found out about us is you type Ramakrishna's podcast. Right. Thank you, Omar. No, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm greatly appreciative of you taking the time out. If you like the show, please subscribe, share, rate, and review. And if you want to connect with me, please send me a message, info at ushacapital.com. Thank you for listening. Creating Wealth Through Passive Apartment Investing Podcast. I hope you learned something from the show. See you in the next episode. Thank you. Any information provided from these shows are educational purpose only. As always, please consult with your own CPA, legal and financial advisor before investing. Thank you.